Hello, everybody. Good afternoon and welcome to the final Power Planners Assembly online assembly for 2023. Where has this year gone? It's been bonkers, hasn't it? Um, I'd like to start by thanking our supporters for this year. That's our friends at Aegon, Barnett Waddingham, Just, Energy Wealth, Parmenian Timeline Transact and Wealth Time. If you haven't done so yet, there should be a little follow button somewhere at the top there to follow us on Crowdcast and we can notify you when we're going live and all sorts of other good things about that. If it's your first time here, great to have you along. Um, these are very relaxed and interactive events. You can say hello in the chat room. We've got some weather reports coming through now, which is good. Um, you can ask questions inside there. You can answer questions inside there. And there's also a question mark in a box on the right-hand side of your screen. You can pop a question inside there as well, and people can vote on it. And I'll keep an eye on those and ask them as we go along. So just to make sure that everyone's chat is working okay, could you pop in there what your Christmas best Christmas film is, your favourite Christmas film? Um, and then when you've done that, on the right-hand side of your screen as well, there's a little kind of bar chart thing that will take you to a poll we've got running, which is Christmas-related as well. So if you could pop in there and cast your vote, and we'll have a look at that a bit later on and see what the outcome is. Um, now, this is being recorded, uh, and a replay will be available afterwards. If you want to come back and watch it again, and if you are watching the replay from the future, then hello from the past. Um, and this year we've started doing our podcast for each assembly. So you can download this uh, in audio format and listen to it while you're walking dog or whatever else you want to do. Uh, it's entirely up to you. So awesome. Good films. Elf, yeah, good one. Wonderful Life, classic. Muppets Christmas Carol. Die Hard, yes. Uh, well, that's related to the poll. Another one, lots of Muppets fans out there. Trading Places, I haven't really thought of that one. Um, Corky, Bond, <laughs> Bond film. Polar Express, yep. Cup of Joe for me, please. Um, Grinch. Oh, that's oh, this great. Love Actually. All controversial, that one, isn't it? Um, so, um, but uh, Grinch, yeah, excellent. Uh, that's good. Let's have a look in our poll and see if anyone's voting inside there. Um, yes, yeah, so is Die Hard a Christmas film? 84% say yes. 85% um, now. Uh, the most shocking thing about that is, though, that our guest today hasn't even seen Die Hard. It's like, what is going on? But we'll come back to that in a second. So what are we doing today? So for what seemed like ages, we've had low interest rates, low inflation rates, and that's given many people the impression that the factors affecting their client's future were pretty predictable and, and settled. But more recently, uh, roller coaster interest rates and inflation rates combined with pandemics and wars and all sorts of other stuff could leave you thinking that the future is altogether more unpredictable. Or is it? Uh, so in today's assembly, we're going to be looking at the kind of indicators that can form a set of assumptions with the durability to withstand those periodic headwinds sparked by social, economic, environmental events, weird prime minister things going on, uh, the sort of things that have dominated our lives lately. Um, and of course, we'll look at investments, um, but also important things like health spans, death, inflation, spending, retirement care. Lots of other things are probably going to feature along the way today, including carrots and Brussels sprouts. Um, who predicted that one? Um, and there are clients with specific outcomes in mind to add to the mix. So things such as meeting school fees and saving to offset university fees and deposits for first homes and all those kind of things. So I'm really pleased to be joined today by a regular friend of the assembly uh, and participant at lots of things we do, Dan Atkinson, to share his knowledge and answer questions. Dan, if anybody doesn't know who you are, could you introduce yourself? Yeah, so I, I am Dan. I'm the proud owner of the Crystal Ball, which will hopefully come in helpful today. Uh, but I'm head of technical at Paradigm Norton Financial Planning. And I have responsibility for all sorts of things. Particularly, I get involved with 
assumptions and how that uh, sits into the way we do financial planning. Brilliant. Thank you, Dan. It's great to have you along. If you went to the big day out uh, back in the sunny summer days of September, um, then you would have joined a session we did there about assumptions that Dan hosted. And we've taken a lot of the feedback from that and comments. Uh, and we're going to cover those things today as well. And as well as not seeing Die Hard, Dan actually has a crystal ball, um, which is really good when it comes to talking about assumptions. So we're going to cast into Dan's crystal ball today and see what we can come up with uh, along the way. So um, on our event page on our website, um, uh, about half an hour after we finish today, there will be lots of links for you to download resources. Um, and we're going to show some of those for you today. But there's three documents which are quite meaty and quite wordy, um, but they are well worth uh, looking at. So one is the FCA's paper on product projection and transfer analysis, um, which is really good. Uh, it goes into a lot about uh, kind of what led up to, to the latest DB transfer rules, talks about what they see as best practice for projections and rates to use. We've got the rates of return FCA paper for projections, which is really aimed at providers. But again, it gives you good insight to what they think is reasonable inside there. And from the halcyon days of the IFP, um, we've got the IFP Fellows Briefing Paper, which is quite a few years old now, um, but it's still you know, a goldmine uh, for people like us paraplanners, all about assumptions. So you can download those along with copies of the slides, links to a lot of things we're going to show you today as well from the event page on our website uh, as we go. So these are the discussion points we're going to cover today. Do we need assumptions at all? So let's start with that one, Dan, shall we? Because um, I know that at the big day out, Thomas from Timeline lobbed a cat amongst the pigeons by saying, let's have no assumptions and just use historical data. So what do you think? Do we need assumptions or not? Yeah, so, um, so assumptions is a, it's probably not the best word it, to be thinking about. I think if when we come to this topic, we're thinking about we're creating a model of the world um, that we can try and play with and see what might happen. Because if we've got this kind of model that we've created, whether that's in Excel or in Buoyant or Truth or whatever products you're using to do that, it enables us to see, well, what would happen if I did this recommendation, if I did that recommendation, if this thing happened? And the great thing is that this is a safe place to do it. So you've got to have some kind of view as to what does this model of the world look like? And we call it assumptions. That's one thing. We call it expectations. That might be another another way of describing it. And uh, the point that, that Tom was making is that actually not uh, you'll hear particularly this time of year a lot of people saying this is my expectations for the future and my forward projections etc and what he's saying it's quite rightly that actually you know this is a bit like yeah it could be anything so how, what can we do to be uh, more robust and reasonable and repeatable in how we construct things well we can look to the past and that does make its own assumption that and um, the past is a good guide to the future, but it's the kind of the only guide we've got. And um, the way we think about that is kind of it's taking a bit of both. You've got to look at look backwards and look at look forwards. So we live in a very complicated world. If we if we link that down to just a really simple model, um, we're we're going to miss some of the nuances. But sometimes we see signs in the data that if something happens, something else might be likely to happen. So the way we, we think about it is we take take a look at what has happened and see how that might fit into the current context. 
Yeah, I, I like that approach because I often get asked, you know, is it best to use forward-looking assumptions or historical data for your basis for assumptions? And, and you're right, it's it's a mixture of both, isn't it? I don't think there's one right way. It's, it's not that simple. Um, it is a mixture of both both uh, ideas around that. Phrase I like a lot. If you've done the um, CFP um, qualification, um, then you will have heard this drummed into your lot, which is assumptions should be robust, reasonable, and repeatable. And I think if, if you go with that one and you follow those three words, you, you can't really go wrong. Um, a lot of it comes down to the rationale and the evidence behind your assumptions. We're going to talk about that a bit later on this afternoon. Um, but I wanted to touch on something, Dan, that you mentioned when we were doing the, the preparation and research for this, um, which is a question you posed. So should we challenge our assumption that the math solution is king? Do you want to kind of talk around that a little bit? Because that, that was a new one on me. Yeah, uh, yeah. Then I had to remember what I was talking about there. Uh, so uh, at our firm, we've got this like this, this strap line: money matters, but life matters more. And uh, it's really easy to create this. This well, it's not easy, but we can create this kind of model of what the world looks like. This happens, that happens, and and go. Yeah, it's quite robust. But we know that life itself doesn't happen in a straight line, and doesn't happen as we as we predict. I, I'm guessing that uh, sort of twenty year old. Richard uh, didn't think that he would be uh, sitting here uh, the week before Christmas wearing uh, a crocking around the Christmas tree uh, t-shirt and uh, talking to talking to me. So uh, we kind of got to have a little bit of flex in the plan and uh, be kind of aware that actually not that a lot of the time our assumptions are built on assumptions on assumptions, and the only thing we really know is, is that they are going to be wrong to some extent. I mean, they're the great. Uh, John Maynard's keys statement says it's better to be roughly right than precisely wrong. So when we are designing assumptions, expectations, or the model, we kind of got to have a bit of flex in it and go, okay, well, the maths is not going to be precise. There's a, an element of, I, I want to say an art to it, but maybe a bit of humanity to it is probably a better phrase. So kind of allowing for things might not happen the way we expect. And that is a good thing. And it's probably a bad thing if we go, oh, I am predicting that on day 427 of your financial plan, the value of your pension will be 1.7543 million and 12 pence. And I can guarantee you that it won't be. And so it's just, it's, yeah, it's just about kind of going, there's more to it. Your financial planning is about individuals, about people. Yeah, I agree. I think this, the whole thing about false precision um, and that quote from, from Keynes is, is really good there about being roughly right. Um, it is good. So the whole bit, just be aware of that false position. But I would temper that by saying that sometimes when people are making assumptions and they're doing forecasts, they don't quite understand what the impact could be of just making a tiny change, something that might seem very small. So if I change inflation by a quarter of 1%. That's not a lot, is it? But that can have a massive impact. So there's two sides to that coin um, to watch out for. Um, and there's a phrase that, um, I can't remember who said it at the RFP, but this really stuck with me, is the only thing I can guarantee about my assumptions is that they're going to be wrong. Um, and I like that one because the, these are educated guesses at the end of the day, and it is an art and it's not a science, as you quite rightly say. So I'm going to ask Dan some questions now, but I'd like to see if anyone could put answers in respect of their firm in, in the chat room as well now, because uh, it'd be good to see what approaches we're all taking out there. So 
how do we manage assumptions? So, Dan, do, do you have a centralised process at Paradigm North? And does anybody do what they want to do? Uh, yeah, so we, we take a centralised approach. And it, that means that we can be consistent. That means that people aren't reinventing the wheel. So the way that that works is um, every three years, we're quite, we try to be relatively disciplined around this, uh, we'll take a from the ground up review of, of all of the assumptions that we feel we need to make in order to build financial plans. And part of that is driven around the inputs that we give to the systems that we use. So we're a Voint user. So we take a look at the parameters that we can set in there. And you do the same thing, whichever software you're using, or if you're building a spreadsheet yourselves. And so we do that and we create a centralized document uh, that sets out, these are the assumptions, but more importantly, these are how we've got there. Because you've got to be able to defend your assumptions. Um, and then, we do push that out um, centrally. So we're a firm of, uh, I think there's around 90 people altogether, not all of them engaged in financial planning, um, but we so we manage that centrally so that everybody has got access to the same assumptions, the same data, same information. Okay, so you kind of do that big overarching review every three years. Do you have interim reviews? So for example, when inflation spiked recently, would you have a, a review then or what, what's your process there? So, we don't have a formal review, but we do get asked questions, uh, or rather, I get asked questions. And I think with assumptions, it's important to be disciplined around your review process and kind of, and not be overly distracted by things that happen in the short term. So I think for quite a lot of us, um, inflation numbers that we've seen over the last year or two, they felt really, really high. But if we kind of then go look back in context, we'll go that actually inflation is quite a noisy bit of data quite often a lot higher than it has been and the the the, the very low inflation that we've been um, gotten used to over the last few last number of years is unusual so uh, we don't want to be don't want to be emotionally driven by them so we there, there's some discipline to it and um, so we don't we didn't review our our assumptions at that point i think we may have actually had a a review happening but our review of our inflation assumptions was we stick with our inflation assumptions that we don't see this we don't see this as that should affect a set of assumptions which are for context are something which is to work over a 30 year period so yeah so it's, it's about making sure that you're, you're you're aware because if i was a client i'd be saying hang on a minute why are why are you assuming this and we do have clients who ask that um, but but be disciplined. Is there a signal or is this noise? Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, you touched on evidence there being so important. Can you describe what your what your audit trail looks like? You know, what, what do you do with source data? What do you produce? Um, how, how does it work for you? Yeah, so I I, I pulled up our our document uh, yesterday, and we so we produced like a, I think it's about twenty four twenty five page document internally. Yeah, it looks beautiful and swish and all those kind of things. Um, but that literally is taking every one of those points and setting out what do what do we think uh, and where's the evidence. So if I was to look at uh, our section on uh, on life expectancy, for example, we we look at kind of we give some context and then we're going to chat about this a bit later uh, of some of the tools that are out there and we give a context of some of the evidence that kind of shows how might that apply to the sorts of population who are engaging with a financial planning professional. Because a lot of the data we have is the entire population, and we might be looking after people who are 
not representative of that. And then we look at kind of how do you pragmatically do it? So things like that, inflation, we take the same approach. We uh, That particular page has a data set of inflation from the 1950s through to as close as we can get it and looks at, well, what's that look like? How does that look like in terms of rolling averages? So we, we give lots of, lots of detail behind that and some of the other ones were, will store the evidence of where we've where we've got those which reminds me of my cfp case study work um, we, we keep copy of the, the evidence mm, yeah I, I think that that's really important there because as you say sometimes you might have to defend these assumptions um where, when you might be challenged in the future so um on that theme i, I mean you're you're a bigger firm than than a lot of firms that most power planners work in where there might be the only power planner there so it's really important to have a sense check or a healthy challenge to what's going on here. So how, how do you do that inside your business? Uh, so we we don't just say Dan is right because Dan is right. Uh, we So these this is something that goes through the investment committee. Uh, so I pre- pre- prepare this proposal and the evidence behind it, and then we discuss it and we agree whether whether we're going to go with those. Uh, so having, uh, having some second checks and then we... We kind of we have evidence that for documents like this that it's been reviewed, it's been signed off, and people can be confident that they're looking at the most up to date documents. Yeah, I like that idea. That works well. It'd be good to hear in the chat room if anybody works in a very small firm. How do you go about doing that sense check or that challenge? Because I think that's a really important part of the process and documenting it as well. And you mentioned about, you know, you've got the kind of the, the, the general population and maybe some um, people that don't fit inside that. Do you have an exceptions policy as part of your process? So a power planner or an advisor can use kind of non-standard assumptions. So they've got to defend it is basically the case. And, and we gave some kind of some loose guidance around where, where are things where, which are a hill I would like to, I would, I would die upon and where things are it's been a bit flexible and we kind of insist that they understand how they work so i think something that i, su- I suspect people have been asked about more frequently is around well what if inflation remains higher uh, so we ask our, we, we dig back and say okay well how would that affect the other assumptions well if inflation is higher then we would hope that your income might rise faster than inflation, and that would t- be typical of a high net worth client or kind of professionals. You would ex- you would say that's probably a reasonable expectation. We'd turn to the investment uh, piece, and we look at well, how do we construct investment proposition investment um, assumptions? And inflation is one of those elements. It's part of the part of the building blocks. Uh, which take us from kind of a risk-free rate, adding on our kind of different equity premiums and factor premiums, and I, so they kind of impact each other. When I did my CFP, we were reminded to set your investment assumptions in real terms. So when your inflation goes up, your investment return assumptions should go up, and the evidence suggests that in, over the longer term that would happen. In the short term, um, yeah, who knows? is the probably not what i would say to a client um <laughs> way we deal with those assumptions so they're allowed to they need to provide evidence needs to be on the file um, for those reasons you said whilst cash flow planning is not a regulated activity might lead to a regulated product sale and ultimately we want to be doing the best thing for our clients and if we have if the foundations of the financial plan 
are yeah are broken then that's a problem so we need to be to evidence that those are solid foundations don't we yeah that, that's a really good point about regulation and that there's still a lot of people that say no cash flow is just not regulated if you speak to the fca they'll say if it's used in any way to demonstrate suitability it comes under the regulated umbrella and so you know that's it um you know comes into play yeah and i've been hearing kind of suggestions that they might start looking at some of the uh, the assumptions or the way that we approach assumptions in the new year uh, uh, so i think it's yes it's interesting to be you don't necessarily have to produce a 24 page document but you should be able to give a reason for what you're stating and store that reason somewhere and use the same reason for every client to tweaking yeah. for their situation there was an interesting discussion i um sat in this is a few years ago now before before the pandemic uh, talking about assumptions and it was talking about the the risk of personal or corporate bias in assumptions because there, there can be a danger if you're you know writing a financial plan for somebody or making assumptions that you project your own views um and because you think they're reasonable and they're right um so do you ever come across that or do you have anything in part of your process around that so, you know, that's where looking looking to data is really important uh, and that helps with avoiding some of our biases so i can remember when i started power planning um we were writing reviews and clients performance was strongly in the negatives and we were giving the context of you know this is within expectations because look at here's the evidence of of other places if that was my main experience i might think oh investing that is never going to work and why are we bothering we're just sticking cash we're going to get some return so what we've experienced and particularly what we've experienced most recently will flavor what we what we do so that's why look at as long a data set as you can making sure that that's a really reliable robust source of data and that kind of helps challenge the thing that we that you do still have to address is uh well what would happen maybe richard if your your assumptions when you come to review them are completely different uh, you've kind of gone okay we're in a whole new world and i can um, to some sense we are we're in a world where actually hybrid work is really normal and uh, for many firms uh, we're in a world where we've all spent uh, a long period um, forced to work remotely things which we would never have thought were even expect acceptable like five ten years ago uh, yeah so yeah there's yeah i've, I've lost my quite lost my train of point but we've yeah, think, things are never going to be the same. So we need to see see further and be cautious in how we change change things. I think it helps to understand well why are you setting these assumptions in the first place, and is it that you're you're going well? Like some of our investment management friends might well be going well. Uh, FTSE 100 will do X percent in the next 12 months. That's not really what we're doing it for. We're doing it to we're going to be erring on the cautious side, uh, both in terms of uh, what we expect to happen because we don't want to be over optimistic we were going to, we might be quite pessimistic in things we might be going well you know we're going to look at some of the really nasty things that could happen to your life and we're going to see whether you, your financial plan would cope with that uh, but we're also kind of tensioning that we've actually you know uh, we want you to get the most out of life that you can uh, and that means that we don't want to be like overly pessimistic on on, on stuff so you, yeah it's really hard 
Yeah, it is. And, and that brings us back to the whole sense check, review, audit trial process, doesn't it? Which, which is why that's so important. Um, let's talk about the most important person when it comes to assumptions, and that's the client. Um, so, so what role does the client play in this? Do they just get the assumptions they're given or is it a collaborative approach? I mean, how, how do you approach that at Paradigm Norton? So it depends. It's probably the, the, safe, the first answer. Um, so your client has come to you because they think that you are experts in your field, uh, but they've also come to you because you're going to work together to get them to the life they want to live. Uh, so the two of them go together. You've got to come up, come with, and uh, this is our robust view of the world because you're not with the financial planning professionals. Uh, we're the ones who are qualified in this. This is what we live and breathe. Your clients most likely aren't doing that. They've got more interesting jobs. It might be the dentists, the film stars, um, the the football club owners, the the business owner down the street. Um, they could be doing anything, um, which is going to be more important to them than sitting around going, "Oh, inflation, inflation, inflation." Um, but e- equally, they will have a view because they're human beings and they've lived through life, and they will have experienced things. Um, I remember talking to a group of paraplanners a, a couple of years ago and saying, "Well," we've experienced inflation at this level and we're now getting a bit worried about it potentially and i think this was before things really kicked off um but we do we address that kind of tension of like some people who uh, might have had mortgages in sort of like the 60s 70s 80s will be going hang on a minute oh i am a little bit worried about inflation coming back up now i can remember what it felt like i can remember that impact on my family on the way i lived the way we were able to make decisions uh, so we absolutely need to take the take their their uh, emotional journey on board, uh, because if we don't, then they're going to go. Well, you know, it's Richard. He's just he lives in a dream world. And this financial plan, this robust model, these patterns on about. It's not. It's not for me. Uh, and they're not going to be able to then feel empowered to make the decisions. Whereas they're going. Yeah, we've got this great picture of the future. It feels robust. Bought into it. I can go off and live my life. I can go off and do those things that uh, that you've encouraged me to go off and do and to start that business, to buy that boat, to go on that holiday without feeling worried. So mm. they, they've got to be a bit buoyant, but they shouldn't be necessarily that full driver. Yeah. Yeah. I think we'll, we'll come on to kind of perception versus reality about inflation a bit later on. But I think it's really important that the clients do define and accept the assumptions you're using because it's their financial plan at the end of the day. And if they don't accept the assumptions, then whatever you produce is going to be meaningless. So, mm. you know, I, there's a great phrase that uh, I've heard you saying, is it reasonable if we accept that we assume this is going to happen? So that that's kind of the client buy-in there. Um, so we, we know this is just a, it's a guess and assumption, but I, is it reasonable for us to accept it, you know, uh, as part of the plan, which is good. One last thing about, about clients before we start to look at some specific assumptions in detail. What about planning for couples? Um, you know, do you use separate assumptions? Do you use a weighted average? What if they have different views on things? Um, what, what's your approach with that? So we, we we aim to work with clients together as a couple, as that kind of that unit. And for the most part, they can have very, very similar assumptions. So the building blocks of their investment assumptions will come from the same roots. The inflation assumption will be the same. There might be differences in terms of like spending profile perhaps and definitely in terms of life expectancy but but we don't go and try and take an overly complicated uh, 
positioned. We want them both to be brought in, but we want to keep, be clear that uh, this, is a, this is a model and it's definitely wrong. It's just better than having nothing. So we wouldn't want to go too, too, too bespoke whether we're dealing with an individual or a couple. Yeah, I think it is a it's a it's a discussion. It's an agreement, isn't it, to to get the right approach there? Because if you have got that disparity, you don't want one being a bit upset because you haven't used their assumption mm-hmm. and going that way. So interesting, right? Let's look at some specifics there. So let's start off with uh, I think one of the most important ones, which is life expectancy. Um, and we we work with um, one advisor um, who's got a great question, the best question in financial planning I've ever heard anybody ask. Uh, so he says to his clients, "When are you going to die?" And then he shuts up, which is a great skill to have. One I don't have, obviously. And he waits. And they often kind of have a little nervous chuckle and say, oh, well, I don't know. Do you know? Um, and then he says, well, no, I don't know. And unless I've got a gun here, we're never going to know. Um, and then you kind of start talking around it. But that, that kind of start to think about these kind of things that, that, that is relevant there. So, so why is life expectancy so important when it comes to planning? Well, it's, it's the definition of your timeline, isn't it, really? I have and it's the trickiness is that we come with it with baggage so we might remember auntie nora who died at the age of 50 um, or, or yeah or and those kind of situations uh, or we might go oh well, i can look at the ons data or and look at averages but the problem with an average is that after people are going to live longer after people are going to live less long and both of those situations is a problem for optimizing the financial plan. You need to know how much life you've got uh, in which the, you're going to need to spend all this money, but you also need to match the other way around. I, there's a great phrase of don't want to be the richest person in the graveyard. And then there's a uh, financial planner whose name's completely escaped me, uh, who, who talks about, uh, about your last check bouncing uh, on, on your deathbed. Uh, so, if it's the most vital thing, but if the most vital thing to be flexible upon, uh, that's yeah, that, that's it's really tricky, and you won't know unless you've got that option that other planner has. Yeah, and younger power planners now are saying, "What's a check?" So, uh, so I like that one. Um, there's a great phrase that I hear talked about quite a bit, which is, "You know, what's going to die first, you or your money?" Um, which really brings it home. And obviously you want to die before your money, although not too soon, ideally. Um, so it's making sure that you can afford the lifestyle you want. So let's have a look at some of the data then. So we, we've got some resources here, which I'm going to bring up on the screen um, and we'll have a little chat through. Um, so Dan, do you want to talk us through what, what we can find on, on these? And these links are available on our event page as well. And Ian might pop them in the chat room as well. So the Office for National Statistics, which I really struggle to say, is a great resource for power planners. So, so what have we got here then? Yeah, so if there's a data point, they've probably got it. And so they do some, they look at uh, life expectancy. So they'll look at, look at the data that they've received. And um, they do some interesting things about how what kills you as well. But they're looking at, well, what's those kind of trends? And uh, we look at expectancy at birth. Uh, and we look at kind of expectancy at certain ages. So it looks they look at each year kind of how many people what proportion of that population are likely to have survived or not survived uh, to, to give kind of that that estimate of how likely are you to reach a given age. Uh, there's kind of two. They look at periods and cohorts. So cohorts are kind of looking at uh, 
and I hope I get this right, it's kind of looking at people who are similar. Uh, the only thing to bear in mind with ONS is that we're looking at a big data sets. So you, what you can uh, you can dial down kind of relatively local, and it, it's not going to be kind of by um, by sort of other demographics. So your socioeconomic class, uh, although some occasionally they do do some cuts. So you you've got these cohorts and this period life expectancy, and period life expectancy. If I've got this one right, it's kind of looking at what your expectancy is. It, oh, you've highlighted some great text there. Um, it, yeah, the expectations at, at birth are at different times. So generally, people live longer than they used to, which is great. And part of that has been that people don't die as early. So uh, a lot of the kind of the childhood diseases that killed off a lot of people uh, a long time ago are, are less of an issue. So that's helped. And medical medicine and medical developments have helped on the other end. Uh, so there, yeah, there's a great resource. So our friends over at Parmenian uh, are linked up with um, Club Vita, which uh, is like a, a group of geeks who are really interested in uh, life expectancy, so mortality and morbidity, which is the other thing to be considering. Uh, and uh, yeah, so they kind of go, yeah, we're, we're seeing life expectancy carry on increasing, maybe not quite as much. So you've got to, yeah, so on, over here on the ONS, uh, you can get lots of data. They do lots of interpretation. So with these great articles, um, but also you can like that. You can download massive Excel spreadsheets and build build stuff to your heart's content. Um, looking at data that they have gathered and data that they gathered about this country, which is really helpful, uh, because otherwise a lot of research you see is kind of US based. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's uh, if you're a data geek, it's a great site to go on. And if you haven't been on it yet, go on there. We've, we've got a couple more pages we're going to show you in a second. But the, the interesting factor is you look at this chart that's just above the highlighted text and it shows, you know, the, the, the changes in trends over time. If you look on the very far right hand side, you can see COVID doing its stuff there. Um, but we, we've got a, uh, a short video we did with Barnett Waddingham, actually, where the actor is there about life expectancy. And one of the interesting points was that we might have actually reached a bit of a tipping point uh, now where everyone's assumed that we're just going to keep on living longer and longer. Uh, and you keep seeing these things on, you know, social media saying that the first person to live to 150 has been born already, you know, and all that kind of stuff. But what it doesn't take into account is all those differences Dan mentioned about regional differences, about economic differences, about um, all sorts of variations you can think of in that the the life expectancy we've got now uh, is driven a lot by the baby boomer generation, you know, those born just after the war, who've never had it so good. You know, they had fantastic jobs for life. They had final salary pension schemes. They had the NHS. They had cheap houses. They had loads of surplus income, you know, great lifestyles, all those kind of things. Um, and now we're starting to see people that um, have lived on junk food, you know, and drink too much, don't exercise at all, you know, hooked on their, their screens. And so we're starting to see in, in some cohorts life expectancy expectations are starting to come down again. Um, so you can't just assume it's going to keep on going up. Um, and I think it's quite interesting that if you go into any cash flow, you know, forecasting tool, the default end age is often 99 or 100 if they can have three digit ages, which not all of them can. Um, so is, is it right to do it, you know, to that? You know, uh, what's the danger there? So if you assume someone's going to live longer than is realistic, then they're probably going to have to spread their money too thin. So they can't really enjoy their money because they're thinking they're going to live too long. 
And the converse, of course, is if, if someone's going to die, you know, you plan for them to die too soon, they're going to have a whale of a time and then they're going to get to 80 and think, OK, I'm still fit and healthy. I've got no money left. So it's, it's a difficult one, isn't it? But the data on that um, is really useful. So there's another um, page on their site, which is the life expectancy table. So you can download these tables on here um, and all sorts of data sets, which are absolutely fantastic. Um, so. That's a good resource as well. And I'm sure every pair of I'm watching has seen this one. Uh, if you haven't, uh, you should go on there right now. So it, it's the old, um, you know, how old uh, am I now? Let's just put somebody in who's 60 and a male, you know, when can I expect to live? So the key thing here is average, right? This is the historical average across the whole country and everybody. And, you know, your clients aren't average, really. But it does show you, you know, you've got a one in four chance of living to this, this guy's to 92. One in ten of reaching ninety-seven, uh, and a three-point-four chance of reaching hundred, and it, it's a bit like mortality drag in annuities. And the, the older you get, the longer you are likely to leave um, to to live. So um, that's very interesting, um, and we use that quite a bit um, inside our audit trial, definitely um, as a starting point. But I don't know what you do, Dan, but I, I think anybody should actually ask the question, you know, when do you think you're going to, maybe not when are you going to die, but, you know, what's longevity like in your family? Is there anything to make you think that maybe you're going to live longer or, or shorter than average? I mean, how do you approach that, Dan? So, I think it's, it's helpful to know what clients think, uh, get them engaged. And we do, we, so we'll, we'll look at some of these charts sometimes uh, because they are helpful because they demonstrate that uh, you lived longer and you're going to live longer, longer type, type points. Uh, but we've we landed with actually you know, actually at 100 is probably a safe point for most people unless there are particular reasons why not to and that would probably be around health uh, so particularly if you're looking at later longer life care you might take a different approach to to those and uh, yeah we kind of landed with with 100 on grounds of uh, if you go with average well half time you're going to uh, have clients who've died, who are still alive, but with no money. Um, do you go 10% out? Is, there, is that running the risk of false precision? And false precision is the is the real enemy here. Uh, so 100 feels sensible at the moment, but there are going to be people who have got different views and accommodate those. I think we had, a, uh, had somebody uh, with a very strong view about exactly when they were going to uh, when they were going to end and how they were going to do that and that was quite challenging from an ethics point of view uh, but behind the scenes you're kind of going well, actually, we've got to be covering uh, that they might live longer than they, than they expect to mm, yeah I, I think you're right there it's it's the nice thing about forecasting software now of course you can model those different scenarios you can say our, our long-term reasonable expectation is 100 this is what your plan looks like you think you're going to go to 125. Um, so this is what it looks like there. But then your partner thinks you're going to go to 80. And here's what that looks like. So you can model those different scenarios, can't you? Um, which is the joy of what we're doing here. Um, Alex has put a good comment in, in the chat about the um, thinking that it was the case that the increase in longevity is reducing, um, not that we won't live longer, which was a really good point. And if, if you look at that chart that we've got there, you can see there, you know, the increase in longevity is definitely slowing down and in fact, <clears throat> dipping a bit. But <clears throat> I can't remember the source, but on that um, 
um, short video we've got with Barnett Waddingham, uh, we did talk about the particular cohorts where it's actually the, the expectation of how long you live is coming down, not just the increase rate that's slowing down. It is actually coming down, um, which is an interesting one. Whether that's a, a longer term trend or it could just be, a, and this is before COVID, by the way, um, whether it's it's a blip, we don't know. But um, it's one of those things to keep an eye on, is it definitely? Yeah, I think they, the data that they look at, and that was a great, great episode, definitely worth listening to, was that uh, so they can look at data from kind of pension scheme members, which is a slightly different cut of the population uh, to to this onus, everyone with a pulse. So it, they do have a little bit of a, a closer closer link towards where, where we're at. Um, unfortunately, we can't get hold of that data to, to use it. So on there, you've got the one in 10 chance um, on living to 97. And Dan, I'm going to pop this off on here. We're not going to go through this, all right, because I can't even say the title without stripping over it. But um, this is a paper you refer to in your own process then, and it helps you kind of move on from that one in 10 expectation to a, a more pragmatic you know, starting position. Do you want to just talk about you know, the main findings you've got from this? Yeah. So um, I had a conversation with, with someone very senior in the, in the profession who said to me that yeah, wealthy people live longer. And I was like, why? And, and I was kind of going, well, is that just data from the States? So in the States, you have to pay a lot for your healthcare. Um, so yes, your wealth is going to help you to live longer in those kind of respects. Um, but there's like, no, 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 this is actually is quite, quite applicable. So we found it, came across this uh, particular paper uh, looking kind of, just asking this question, is there any kind of evidence behind this? Or is this just someone who is a lot older than us so that, so it, talking about what they've observed and this paper kind of talks around that uh yeah around those kind of factors it's a good paper it's it's quite academic um as you'd expect uh but the thing that was helpful about this was saying actually you not know, some of these trends we see in the states actually are the same for england and i i would extend that to wales and scotland and northern ireland and, and other areas where you're planning and and Again, there is something in this that there is a social economic difference, and it does kind of link through to uh, the things they're talking around are not just life expectancy, but this disability free life expectancy. So that kind of like uh, when the kind of the healthy part of your time where you your go go years uh, versus the kind of the years when you might be struggling sort of physically, mentally, or, or whatever. But it's a good paper. It's well worth a read, and it's. I know that you know a lot of policy setters look at these kind of things uh, around you know general approaches towards education, occupation, income disparity, community, all those kind of things. Um, this is a slide from uh, an assembly we did online. I think it was back in June with with um, Patrick from Parmenian, um, which really brings this to life. So it, it's showing you know the, the wealth effect later in life, um, and it shows you know good health deteriorates faster for men and women living in the most deprived areas, as you can see there quite uh, drastically from that chart there. Um, so just where you live um, can have a massive impact, you know, on, on what's going to happen um, to you in the future. So we just need to be aware of these things and, and the fact that, you, you know, one size fits all doesn't always work. It's a good starting point, but just be prepared to maybe think about these things and discuss these things when you're agreeing assumptions with clients. So. So that's life expectancy. And you touched on morbidity as well, and also kind of disability free. So it's not just about when are you going to die, but you know, how healthy are you going to be along the way? You know, what's the chance of maybe having to, to, to need support for whatever reason or not being able to work? Mm. So they're important considerations as well um, to put in there. So let's go on to, to the next one now, which I think is um, 
equally as important, and that's inflation. Um, popular topic for the last couple of years, um, you know, thanks to global events and some more local events. Um, and there's different types of inflation. So people just say inflation think it's one thing. But, you know, we've got RPI is quite a common one. We've got CPI. You've got RPIX. I think there's the Silver Surfer RPI or something now. So there's there's all sorts of inflation rates out there. Um, so, Dan, have you got a view on this is the one we choose or how do you go about it? Yeah, so I mean, we work with CPI. Um, there are a few reasons for that. Uh, one being that it is actually an official national statistic and RPI no longer is. And there's a lovely article on the ONS website, uh, which explains in great detail why that recommendation was made to switch the measures. Um, there's some massy things in there and there's some like baskety things in there. It's not just what we people maybe perceive as housing costs in and out. Uh, so CPIs are a more robust data set. Uh, that's kind of why we, why we use that. Uh, but ultimately, that's a basket of goods that like, not everybody buys. Um, we joked about um, about Brussels sprouts uh, RPI and uh, carrot RPI. Brussels sprout RPI sadly is no longer measured and hasn't been since I think two thousand and seven or so. Uh, but yeah, uh, I, I thought be festive. I uh, you can get so the great thing about ONS is you can get all their underlying data. So you could theoretically go what's your client's uh, grocery shop look like. Uh, yeah, Nathan Big Mac index sounds good. Uh, people talk about the Fredo index as well. But you could you could build the basket of your clients' goods, and I I appreciate I love Brussels sprouts, and uh, perhaps a few of you don't. I don't need to speak to you ever again, do I? Uh, but, but you could build you could build that 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 uh, that that personalised inflation. But the point here is saying that actually not, inflation isn't this one figure that applies the same for everything. So. Getting overly heads up about uh, a generalist CPI is hard uh, and it's kind of going to be maybe missing the point. Uh, so think about think about the things, think about the core expenses. So someone who's um, who has solar panels on their roof and that covers all of their electricity and all of their energy. They don't have their off grid. Uh, some large parts of CPI aren't going to affect them in the slightest. Or they'll affect them through kind of knock-on effects of like, energy on food prices. Uh, so, yeah, they be a bit loose with it. So our approach with C, with CPI as a whole is we went we went and looked at what's the long-term picture looked like. I think we might actually even have a have a chart a chart here. There you go. Possibly eight hundred years for you. Yeah, eight hundred years. I don't often pull this one out. Uh, so Bank of England produced like. Uh, a massive Excel spreadsheet. You'll all love it, like the millennium of macroeconomic data. And, and this is, I, I pulled out the, their uh, inflation figures. And you go to the, the thing that's constant about inflation is that it is up and down and it's quite volatile. And if anything, looking at that kind of right end, um, where we come up towards 2000, and this is barely true in the 20 ish years after that, uh, it's, yeah, it's less volatile than it was. So we we don't go and look back at the full. We look at this ch this chart and we go, okay, well, have, what are the averages? What's the kind of long term trends? What what's the target of the Bank of England? And uh, please don't put in the chat what you think about the ability of the Bank of England to achieve the target. But that's what they're working towards. So we we looked at that and we kind of go, yeah, we know we know there's going to be considerable volatility in this, but 
we set it around where we set it at two and a half percent because looking long term that that works looking at rpi and cpi they kind of they do similar things you'll notice there's a color change about halfway through it's because cpi didn't start until uh the late eight the late 80s early 90s but thanks thank you ons they went back and uh, extended that data set back to 1950 and uh, so yeah we kind of like what's the data and we know that from this that there's gonna be large periods when it's probably about right and there'll be large periods where it's absolutely not right but for building a model where we can only put one number in that feels safer yeah i agree i think that the trends in the long-term history is, is a good uh good draw for, for knowledge on this one um and i have i've heard some people that have changed their long-term inflation rate assumption because of what's happened in the last 18 months two years which are not not too sure about that one uh but again you, you could model different scenarios showing well, what inflation stayed at i mean what is it at the moment six percent or something um you know can stay uh, uh at that kind of rate so you can look at all those different kind of things um quick power plan of question for you on the brussels sprout index here um, who can guess what month is down the end here when you've got those bottoming out prices? I'm not going to mouse over it, but um, down there. Who can guess what month of the year the Brussels, Brussels sprout price bottomed out at? Um, and there'll be a bag of Brussels sprouts for the winner. Um, and we did have the carrot index as well, didn't we? Um, there we go, yeah. which is following similar uh, kinds of trends there. Um, Becky, oh, Becky's gone for June. Nathan's gone for January. Alex has gone for June. Either you've clicked through the link and looked at it already, which is great for initiative. So I'll give you a big thumbs up on that. December, definitely not December. Um, no, it is June. Um, and who reckons they can tell when the Brussels sprout price spikes? So everyone on the, on the top there over on the right hand side. What month of you do reckon that was? So if June was the bottom. Um, when's when's the spike? December says uh, Riz there. I think a lot of people are going to say just 24th of December. No, it's not. It's not. It's September. Because again, the devil's in the detail. These are the future buying prices that people lock in. So the most expensive time to secure your Brussels sprout addiction is September, because um, that's when the you know, demand's going to peak. So um, yeah, consumption's December, um, but prices is September. And the market bottoms out in June, because who wants Brussels sprout ice cream at the end of the day? Um, great, so that's inflation. Um, yep. Again, we, we'll pop all these links uh, up so people can see these uh, a bit later on. Um, which is good. So let's have a talk about investment returns then, which is probably the most contentious one of the rooms where people have got to, to kind of go wrong. So conscious of time, um, what's your approach to investment returns? Yeah. So uh, we work with a third party uh, for to support our investment committee. So some of you would have come across a firm called Albion and they help us with uh, building our methodology. So our methodology is building blocks and uh, we take we start with risk-free rate, so that would be typically government bonds, treasury bills, and then we look at what's the expectations for the different premiums. So the the what you get paid for taking equity risk, uh, so in developed markets, emerging markets, and uh, those who double in uh, size and value, uh, those kind of things. So we build we build those up. Uh, they are with reference to inflation, and with the bond world, we we look at well, okay, we have the risk-free rate. Uh, this kind of theoretical government bonds T-bill. And uh, then we look at what do you get paid extra or what's the expectation of being paid extra for the risk factors. And we look at uh, terms, so how long are you lending that money to, money for? Short periods, you're generally not going to get rewarded as much because there's less time for it to go wrong. You've got credit, so 
the more risky the institution that's being lent to, the higher the return you want, just like with mortgages. And uh, this factor called role, which I'll, which is very hard to explain, but it's kind of looking at that um, the yield curves often have a curve. And the maths of it is kind of, if you hold a 10-year bond, uh, two years later, it's an eight-year bond. And the that yield expectation is different for them. You kind of benefit from that change in expectation. And an investment person would tell me that's a terrible explanation. But that's that's what we, and we, so we work with them. They are investment geeks to the hilt. And uh, that helps us to have robustness and they help us with evidencing why you, why you take that, that view on the different bits of premium, looking at past data, looking at, uh, yeah, at market expectations. For those that, that aren't um, in larger firms that have access to those kind of resources, there's lots of information out there, um, both in terms of looking at historical data. So if you go onto Financial Express Analytics is, is our go-to place for this, or even Trustnet, you know, the free version is quite good. And there's a lot of uh, sort of free available information about economic expectations, and you can kind of put together your own assumptions. But, um, you know, as a default, in absence of anything else, you know, you can see what kind of strategy am I recommending? You know, what, what's been the long term average return around this, you know, inflation adjusted? And you can start with that uh, and build from it. So you, you can go quite simple, but still robust and, and reasonable. Or you can go quite more sophisticated, um, which is the approach that Dan's describing there. Um, when it comes to things like stress testing, do you have um, a set process for that? Yeah. Uh, so we, when we're talking about stress testing, uh, we're not just talking about um, investments. So you can stress test with investments and go, look, what's our, what, what's our expected range of returns and how might that impact on the plan if that happened? And you can use that, do that with your cash flow planning tools. And you can look, but the kind of thing we, we also look at is uh, stress testing life. So stress testing the financial plan is for situations, things like uh, like one of the one of the people in the plan dies, one of the people in the plan can no longer work, or both can't can no longer work. And so, so we're looking at, well, what are, what are all the bad things that could happen uh, that, that could derail your financial plan, both in terms of the life that it's representing and also that the investment journey that's powering that funding life uh, and we see well what can we do because it's safe to do that in cash flow it's not safe to do that in real life yeah well i agree um let's have a bit of a kind of a, a rapid fire last few minutes if that's okay with you um let's start off with um school fees education fees planning um and you've got a very good graphic here um which kind of gives some meat to the bone of this one john talk us through your approach you take with this yeah, so uh, so this can apply for a, any other kind of particular assumption setting. So we want to look at maybe what evidence is there. And uh, a lot of these categories are already covered in CPI. So uh, look at the ONS for those data and look to see if are there any kind of trusted or appears to be trusted experts uh, about there. Uh, so and use that as a source to start with. The best way to nail down an assumption is uh, I imagine that uh, many people who are aspiring to send their children to to private education have got an idea of where they want that to be. So you could pick up the old dog and bone and and talk to that institution. They're going to be happy to have funded in the future. They they may well be able to help you with well, what are the fees like at the moment? How have they changed? And the CPI education helps with that kind of going. Well, actually, you know, this is an area where costs things tend to increase. 
a lot quicker than than prevailing rates of inflation. Uh, those two charts there, which I which I borrowed from uh, this school's fee schoolfeeschecker.co.uk website, so I can't vouch for the provenance, but they do they do give that indication that it's strongly based on the region where right, where you're sending your child, uh, as well as whether they're day pupil or whether they're other, whether they're going to be staying. Yeah, and if you are phoning up a specific educational establishment, always ask a question about their bursary policy and if they offer a discount for advanced payment, because that can actually help a client's financial plan quite a lot. Um, and, and the same approach goes with care fees as well, which again is becoming more and more prevalent with more clients. Um, you know, think about the assumptions you'll use around care fees, both in terms of period of payment and escalation and changes in need, all those kind of things. Um, now, we could spend a whole hour talking about, um, you know, securing income annuities and people's kind of permission to spend more themselves. But Dan, just like, like 60 seconds, um, I'm going to pop up here to do this, um, again, another academic paper that you've shared with me. But um, what's the kind of idea uh, around this one? Yeah, so it's not by someone flogging you an annuity, uh, but it's saying, OK, well, how does it affect the way you spend money uh, if you have guaranteed income and you're you will feel generally feel more comfortable and confident you know that there's money coming in and so you might actually feel more more able to spend money whether that's money from the guaranteed income or money from your other invested wealth and uh so this is a great paper it was relatively accessible um oxford risk have literally in the last few weeks uh, put out a paper uh looking at a very similar topic and kind of going well if you've got this guaranteed income this certainty you've got greater capacity uh, for loss, you could take more investment risk and potentially could come out with a better outcome, which could mean in terms of like, outcomes that matter, not investment outcomes, client gets a better life out of it. So I thought it was really a good challenge. Uh, that people often think about annuities one and done, and uh, they're boring and oh, drawdown might be better, uh, or they might get over rate driven uh, by them. But actually, there's a great psychological uh, benefit potentially, which we're starting to see. By securing some of that some of that need yeah i think that that's well worth a read that one and people are starting to review their crps um around that that whole process about securing income and talking about spending and spending patterns there's a lot of good stuff on the phenolytic and beta folio uh timeline as i now know website around the, the change in spending patterns in different stages of retirement i'd recommend going to read that one um without a shadow of doubt um we're not going to get time to go into things like deterministic and stochastic forecasting and, and all that kind of stuff, which is a bit of a shame, but maybe we'll do that another time. But uh, there's only one question down left, which I think we need to ask of you. Could you gaze into your crystal ball and tell us if it's a reasonable assumption that you're going to watch Die Hard now? Well, I've got very, very busy Christmas plans, so I, I don't know. If, if enough people uh, ask, suggest it, then maybe we'll add it to the to the playlist next time I'm uh, on the train down to, to Bristol. Yeah, well, Mystic Dan, thank you very much for, for your insights there. Um, that's it, uh, I'm afraid, everybody. Um, thank you very much for, for joining in today. Um, you can keep the conversation going on the big tent. Um, as always, you know, ask, answer any questions there. Keep an eye out for our events in the new year on our website. A massive thank you to Dan um, for coming on, sharing his time, his insight. I've learned a lot from this process. So a massive thanks uh, to you, Dan. Thanks again to our supporters this year. That's Aegon, Barnett Waddingham, Just, MG Wealth, Parmenian, Timeline Transact, and Wealth Time. And all it's for us to say is have a wonderful Christmas festive New Year break, whichever way you wanted to, to call it. Um, and we'll see you all again in the new year. Goodbye from us. Mm -hmm.